We all need a vision. And a vision, not unlikely that vision, that vision that God gave Ezekiel. We all need to stand before a valley of dry bones, obviously dead, obviously, in the words, very dry, without life. And we all need to see what the word of the Lord can accomplish. I believe that is my greatest hope in these days that I'm living in now. Is that once again the people of God might find real hope. Not the kind of hope that's hoping for a pay raise. Not the kind of hope that's hoping for the world to suddenly turn into one great Christian nation. But the sort of hope that rather has a biblical basis. The sort of hope that is spawned out of the heart of God and breathed by the breath of his spirit into those who follow him. While we live on this earth and while we struggle on this earth, at times there come into our lives people who are hopeful beyond expectation. I would call it audacious hope. The kind of hope that is risk-taking hope. The kind of hope that leans into the future even when they don't know what the future will be. And one of those smiling faces who's given me that hope, I've asked to come and share with us a little while this morning about his journey of hope in his own life, and that's Brandon. And so, Brandon, I'm going to ask you to come and join me here. And Brandon's going to share a little bit about the hope that lives in him as a setup for the rest of the sermon. I don't get excited when Brandon gets through because I'm not through. But Brandon is coming to share with us. Yes, you're working. That's right. First challenge, you made it. Next challenge is finding your way up the stairs, right? We're all right. He told me he... he right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> if they knew how much work that took, they would understand, right, Brandon? This is how it looks, that's right. Yeah. All right, my name is Brandon Knight, um, and I've been a member of this church for 13 years now. And I, I say that, and I go, oh my gosh, where's the time go, right? Some of you are going, I don't even want to hear that, right? But 13 years. And I've been married to my wonderful and beautiful and amazing wife, Rachel, now for 12 years. We got two amazing children. Thank you. More applause. Cool. That's right. And we got two amazing children, Asher and Banner. Um, <clears throat> I began my walk here in this building. Yeah, more, more applause. 
with Christ in this church. Um, so I love this body of believers. And I've watched us, right, in this body of believers, walk through different trials and tribulations. I've seen the ups and I've seen the downs. And here I am today limping up this stage and taking over this podium. That's a little bit surreal. And I, I, I don't know, that am I worthy to be up here, right? Those questions come to my mind. But truth be told, I've envisioned coming up to this stage 12 years. And I, I gotta go, we, we went back and forth whether we're going to do this. I told my wife that years ago. And she said, oh, we've got to get you up on that stage. We've got to tell Doug. We've got to tell Cindy. We've got to get you up there. But I wouldn't let her. <laughs> because I like to envision it. I like to think about it. But I didn't actually want to do this. But here I am again, right? And early on when I thought about that over the years that I've been in part of this church, when I envisioned coming up on the stage, I strolled up here confident, ready to provide a message that I was just going to blow you all away. But things changed seven years ago. Today I'm not able to do that, right? You saw that journey, right? You watched me struggle. One hand on the rail and one on a cane. Here I am, limping, tripping, but making my way up here to provide this message. And I'm probably worried some of you, right? Some of you are like, oh, God, don't catch your foot. Don't trip. Don't fall. I know, I know that was there. But that was the journey that I had to go through. And I guarantee my wife's going, Brandon, put your foot on that staircase. Brandon, put, grab that rail. Get yourself up there. Be careful. Take your time. Don't catch your foot. Like only my wife can do, she encourages me. She really does. She does. How do you find hope in the midst of suffering and pain? Right? When we need it most, where does that come from? When things change in your life and you end up in circumstances where you go, how am I here? How is this now my reality? What do you do? Where do you go? For me, I go to the Word. And early on in my journey, I went to the Word. Right? When Christ was on the cross, and I used to think about that thief, right, that was next to him. And that gave me so much hope in my life. Because, right, remember when he spoke to him? And, the, and here was the thief, right, in, in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43. And he says, and the thief was saying, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Christ say back to him? Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. And I love that scripture. I go to that over and over again because I thought, I have hope, right? A sinner like me can be saved and be set free of this. Really? If, he's, if there's hope for him, there's hope for me. And that did, it, you know, it... it it gives me hope, right? It gave me hope over and over again. Because I, I just wasn't sure at that point in my life of things. I wasn't sure if I was worthy when I thought about that over and over again of that hope. That was, that was the question that went through my head, right? Am I, am I worthy of this? To actually receive that promise of salvation? And, and I didn't feel worthy. I know some of you feel this too, right, of your past. You think about your past. And mine included women, drugs alcohol, all those things on a regular basis, unfortunately. 
So I get that thief, right? He's not worthy of that salvation, of that experience with Christ. But it resonated with me when I heard that. Oh, my word. Honestly, guys, when that took place, I, I, I stayed right there. I was frustrated. I wanted to grow, but I didn't know how. How do I go forward? And over seven and a half years ago, I went to the doctor. And I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Size of a small grapefruit. And life changed with one MRI. And I remember sitting in my car shortly after that diagnosis with my wife and my 10-month-old son, Asher. Not sure how to move forward in this new reality. Not sure what to do, how to move forward, right? But here's the Lord, right? Here's his awesome grace. It became clear to me. It was a clarity I've never received in my I've never experienced before in my life. How many people I was going to be able to reach. And that is being fulfilled even more today as a result of that suffering. And I've been able to encourage a lot of people over, over the years with this journey, right? Suffering unites us, brothers and sisters. There are stories to be told and encouragement to be provided in the midst of our suffering. And I was given courage after meditating about this a few weeks ago. And I was thinking, just, just thinking through all this. And, and what I really came to when I was thinking through all that, it's not about me. It's about the other people in my life that I can touch. It's about God allowing me to get into a room like this and provide this message of hope to this congregation. I see my wife and my kids and what hope I can provide to them. So do me a favor right now. Everybody close your eyes. And just recognize those people in your life. Those people that you interact with. And how you can provide them hope. How every one of us has been, have been equipped to provide that hope. We all, we all have that within us to be able to do that. And we all have those stories. And we all have those interactions in our life. And let's do that today. You can open your eyes back up. Because there is always hope in the midst of pain and suffering and doubt. There's always hope, brothers and sisters. Despite our circumstances, despite our suffering, despite the evil in this world, there is hope. And we know, we know truth, right? Hope is never wasted. So I want you to follow me through this scripture in Romans chapter 5, verses, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> it's one of the scriptures that I've gone to over and over and over again. I had to provide that here today. There, through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, brothers and sisters. This is a good word. We rejoice in our sufferings. How? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Oh, here's that word. And character produces hope. Hallelujah. And hope does not put us to shame. Nope. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a gift. See, Paul in that scripture, right, he's reminding us as Christians, we can rejoice in the midst of any circumstance. Nothing can join us up. Nothing can hold us down. No, we have been equipped to go out into this world and provide hope. Every one of us. And hope is the highway that gets us from that point A to point B. And hope is what keeps us moving and rejoicing through whatever circumstances life throws our way. Anything. And I know some of you have suffering today. I know that, without a doubt. And you have in your life, but I want you to know today there is purpose in your suffering. Because when we open up about our pain and our suffering, it unites us, brothers and sisters. And ultimately provides hope to others, right? We want to provide hope to others. And we all need hope. And we all need to provide hope to others in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering. Yes, brothers and sisters, I limped up this stage and I may limp back down, but I have hope. And my hope today is that everyone that has this seed, this planted so deep in your hearts today, that you can't help but go out and tell people about the hope you have inside you. And however that looks, right? Maybe it's just by encouraging somebody else today. Maybe that's just helping somebody around the house. Going over to spend some time. I just want to help you today. I want to be with you. Maybe it's telling a family member you love them. However it looks, take the opportunity, please, today, to do something that provides hope. Because this world, because this congregation, because this city, because this state, because this country needs help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for hope. Thank you for the work that you did on the cross to ultimately show us hope. Lord, but allow each and every one of us today to know that we've been equipped with the message to go out into this world when we leave this building to provide hope to those who need it, who desperately need this hope. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. And thank you for this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's that? I'm going to see you later. Okay, cool. I'll take that up. Is he stubborn? What a gift.
for him in this place in his life. You know, before we get fixated on Brandon, and which is easy to do, I get fixated ultimately on his smile because it's always there. He falls down and he gets up smiling. Every time life throws him a curve, he responds. He responds because he is filled with that hope that he's talking about. But it's not just him. I think this place could easily be called a house of hope without stretching it. I think of the hope that I've received from others who've walked and lived in this body of Christ. I think of Jim Clark, who also had a brain tumor, who also struggled with hope and lived longer than the doctors thought he ever would, even as Brandon is doing and continuing to do today. Not really measuring his life based upon simply how many years were left, but rather basing his life upon how his hope in Christ strengthened Jim just as it has strengthened Brandon and how he could pass that hope on to others. It is that attribute that is a part of the identity of being a member of the body of Christ. It has been so since Christ lived that kind of way in our midst because he made it so clear. I think of of Lois Evans who makes it somehow here, however she, whatever she has to do to find a ride to get here and how long, ever long she has to wait to get a ride back. And here this young spry chicken, I'm not for sure how many years that Lois has been traveling around the world and serving her Lord, but I know it's been a lot, asked me last week, could we have lunch together so you could explain to me about the struggles in the United Methodist Church? I really want to understand. And I smiled and I said, yes, Lois, I'll be there next week. So we're going to meet this week and we're going to talk about so that she can understand what's going on in the church that she has loved and served in so many years. I think not only of Lois, I think of Nancy Butts. Every time I see her and how a broken hip couldn't keep her down, how to see her back up again, another smiler in our midst, another person who faces life unafraid. I think of Wes Trader who's in heaven smiling down at us now, who every day I came to the church I was greeted by, and every day he hugged me and told me he loved me. I think of how much hope was in that man. I think of the prayer we were having the night before he had the surgery that he knew was a little risky, but he wasn't worried about it because his hope was in Christ. And he would just say, well, Christ has always been with me. You know, he loved to point that finger up. Truth be told, that was the last major battle he would fight. And some might say, well, Wes lost that last battle, but they would be wrong. Because whenever that surgery was over and Wes's body couldn't return, he cast that body aside and he got a new one. And that hope for his Savior was magnified with the very presence of Jesus like it could have never been upon earth. Hope is sometimes, however, not only in the victorious, but sometimes hope is in the midst of struggle. Susan is in the midst of struggling for the hope to return after making herself respond to the reality in her life. Justin and Tara are just back from a crushing loss and sudden loss of his mother. They're back trying to find Christ in the midst of this experience that's challenging their family. 
You can't just go around the room and change cha- challenges and changes comes to many of us, not just in our own personal lives, but in our relationships. Some of you are probably here who are struggling with your marriage. You're struggling with your relationship to the most central person in your life other than your Savior. Some of you are here today who may be struggling with grown children, perhaps grown children who have seemingly rejected the faith that you taught them. Some of you are here today who are struggling, struggling trying to understand your teenagers. Don't worry, they're struggling trying to understand you. I have hope for both of you. Struggle is a part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Struggle can be difficult. Struggle can come in the midst of great pain and challenge. But as Brandon so clearly said, struggle also can provide purpose and opportunity for us to show to ourselves as well as to show to others that even in the midst of struggle, our faith is at the center of our lives. In fact, quite clearly to me, when I look at the church in the West, as they call us, the church in the United States, to me, the church in the West is struggling. To me, our culture is weaving back and forth between the throes of not knowing where to go next. Now, I say that realizing this, that while my generation looks down at those millennials and go, oh, my Lord, and Susanna's got a class with them, I'm thinking, oh, my Lord, you know. Then I remember a few years ago when in those early stages of boomers, the generation or two before me, that great generation, was looking down at the baby boomers going, oh, my God, what is going to happen to our country now? What's going to happen to our world now? Well, the good thing is those boomers grew up, right? They learned to take responsibility. And guess what? We're not the same when we're 25 as we are when we're 55. Praise God. From both ends. Because both ends provide hope for each other in a strange way. Because I'm glad that the millennials don't just accept the world they're presented. I'm sad when those who are in the other generations, can't seem to pass down more clearly what it is that is their hope. So that the millennials might get to that fulfilling point of their life sooner than perhaps the boomers did. I'm also sad when we get so old that hope begins to wane. What is more pathetic, and I'm going to speak in the, in the generic, generic term appropriate to me, what's more pathetic than an old angry man who looks at the government and says it's all a big mess they're all a big mess it's all going to be wasted away nobody can do it I'm going to just be clear nobody can do it quite like an angry white man who lives in the west with more benefit than any other white man his age has ever known we're pathetic we're pathetic What is the temptation about getting old that drives us to be so negative, so pessimistic? I didn't have a pessimistic bone in my body when I was 25. But by 35, I'd found one or two. And by 45, I discovered a muscle or two that were attached to a pessimistic bone or two. And now, now, and then occasionally I get to thinking, 
man, what's the church going to do when Doug dies? And the answer to that, I hope and pray, is thrive like it has when every other person dies. Because, you see, we get so self-centered. I like to say people get so self-centered that we really stink. We have a smell. We stink up the world around us because all we think about is ourselves. You say, well, why are you going this direction with hope, Doug? To make it obvious that we need the hope that's around us. To make it obvious that one of the characteristics of Christians is to be hopeful. We don't have the characteristic of giving up. We don't have the characteristic of looking at the dry bones around us or within us and going, well, it's just beyond hope. That's not Christian. That's something else. That is not what Ezekiel saw in that valley, and that's not the message that God gave to us through Ezekiel with those bones. I know, and you know too, that we live in a place where sometimes it is struggle to be hopeful. And I know, and you know, that we love for life to be easy. But it's just not. And if life is really easy for you now, watch out. It won't always be so. I remember when a young woman came up to me in a town for a long while ago when I was teaching Disciple Bible Study. And we'd been through a series of lessons talking about how hard life could be. And she walked up to me, dressed perfectly, looking perfectly, perfectly athletic, young, 45-ish or so. And she looked at me and she said, I've never had any of those problems. I've never had that struggle. My parents are both alive and healthy. My husband's parents are both alive and healthy. We have a wonderful family. We have a great life. I don't know what to think. And I said, don't worry. Just enjoy now because it won't always be that way. Little was I to know how soon those her life would begin to change with the sudden death of a brother-in-law at age 50, with a sudden loss and struggle with some of her children, with a sudden loss and threat to their lifestyle and her husband's job back in the 80s, when the real estate market fell, they were right in the center of it. Little was she to know that even years later, he would be charged with a crime he didn't commit. But that he would have to suffer through in the midst of all that. We're all going to suffer. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And in fact, I would go so far to say, if you're not suffering at all, you better look around because you're not probably not living a very Christian lifestyle. Come and eat dinner on Wednesday nights at the church. Why? Because I want you to watch a suffering servant. You say, what do you mean? I want you to watch Lindy Thomas. I want you to watch Lindsay Thomas. That couple who come up here and try to guess how many people are going to be here so they'll have enough food for however many show up. People always say, do y'all sign up? We said, nope. We just serve the food. And when it gets toward the end, when we share what's left with those who are last. And we hope that those who are first, hope that those who are first don't pig out first. Especially if we have company, right? 
And we said, what are we going to charge the people who we're inviting to come who maybe not can't afford to eat? I said, well, we're not going to charge anything for the meal. If you want to give something, give something. If you don't, just eat. And I remember the happy look on Brian's face when we announced that. <laughs> but you know what? He's never said much about it since. And you know what? Really, what comes into the pot ends up pretty much covering the cost of the meal because Lindy prepares it very carefully. She does most of the shopping or all the shopping herself. She gets here and she cooks it and she slaves in that kitchen because she's a servant of Christ and she wants to provide the meal to those people. And those other volunteers who come early and slave alongside her, including her husband, who gets there and cleans up the pots and pans, they do it because of who they are. And they are hopeful. They are hopeful, yes. But they are hopeful that in their serving, some will feel loved by the church. And we started a Sunday school class for single parents. And guess what? They're still growing. And guess what? They come and they provide a meal that helps their budget without any fear or angst about someone looking at them to see if they're putting anything in the bucket that's hidden kind of over to the side of the table. Nobody ever complains about the cost of the meal. But the meal comes together because it's an outreach to the community. It's the same thing yesterday with all the people visiting the campus. We're hopeful they came and they did. And for those who were here, we were able to shower them with our presence and our love and to try to get to know them and just to make a connection with the people in our neighborhood. And so we did. Yes, we live in a sinful world. And it's going to challenge us. It's going to challenge our health. It's going to challenge our wealth. It's going to challenge our nation. It's going to challenge us in every way. It's going to challenge our own understanding of our selfhood. Because in the very sinful nature that we are born into, we love to take care of ourselves first. Nothing is more unchristlike than that. But that is what is very human-like in the bodies in which we are born into. It is our nature to focus on ourselves instead of finding ourselves cared for by focusing on others, which is the way Christ lived. It's when tragedy comes that we begin to realize that. We don't have to just learn from our own tragedy. You know, we can learn from the tragedy of others. We can. It's possible if we're teachable and if we're intentional about studying the scripture and watching in people's lives. We can learn how to be forgiving by watching and learning from others, especially the cries. We can learn how to be loving by watching others love others in words when necessary and in deeds constantly. We can learn. And it's in the middle of loving and forgiving and being intentional and teachable that suddenly we become this hopeful creature that we are. Some of the most angry minutes, and as you can imagine, in my younger years more than in my older years, but still even in my younger years occasionally, I would get so angry at things people who were Christian would say in churches. <laughs> there were some phrases that I just would love to bury. Phrases like, well, they're never going to amount to anything. They'll never come to Christ. They're not Christian. They're not one of us. And if we help them, they won't appreciate it. 
when those words come out of the children who've accepted the grace that Brandon was talking about, the unmerited favor of God, and they give up on other people who have not yet experienced that, what does that say about you? What does it mean about the church when we're so inwardly focused that we're very good outwardly? That is the dry bones of the church in the United States today for the most part. Not always, not all the time, but it is a predominant enough that a younger generation has caught up. And they are saying, as they have rejected the church and religion, you Christians aren't very Christian, and I don't want to be a part of that. And we go, well, we're better Christian than you are. We're at least in church. We got our seats bolted down, right? What did Mahatma Gandhi say about becoming a Christian? If he could just find someone living like Jesus, he might switch. Was he wrong then? Would he be wrong today in most cases? Or are we not, most of us, still treading water? Still treading water because, you see, we have this bag of bones we're carrying around, and a lot of them are very dry. And we don't really want the breath of God to breathe into us, so unconsciously we reject it. Because, you see, as the breath of God comes into those dry bones, those selfish bones become unselfish bones. And those living for me thoughts become living for other thoughts. And that secure retirement becomes a retirement with more time to give what we have left away instead of more time to give down to our children who don't need it. And you say, preacher, you're getting on really dangerous ground. I hope so. I hope so. Because the life of the church is at stake. You see, Jesus came hopeful, if you can imagine it, that in his living, others would experience life. He came hopeful that in his dying, people might get it. He came hopeful that 11 men would take the gospel around the world. And I said many times, and you've heard me say it, bad idea, Jesus. 11 guys like that. But guess what? To their known world, it pretty much got out there. In fact, it got out there so much that some of the disciples get lost in history. We don't know where they went for sure or how they died. But most of them died serving their Lord. His hope came true in them. He came hopeful, believing that the followers would gather together and study the scriptures and have those dry bones exercise surgery by surgery spiritually so that they might be more and more useful to his Father in heaven. And you know what? The church exploded when it was centered on doing just that. He came hopeful believing that the organized church could care for itself and could care for the world and make it clear who Jesus was. And in some places in the world that's happening. And in some places it's a struggle because we get too caught up in ourselves. I'm going to give you a last example today. For fortunately, this sermon about being hopeful and confident 
come as a parent. I'll get. To, I'll finish next week. But you see, in this hopeful idea, and in the midst of this hope, hoping that these dry bones can live again, Jesus gave Himself away to a hope that should be audacious. Yeah, I'm stealing the phrase. Some of you probably never read the book. Some of you probably did. It's called The Audacity of Hope, written by a young black man named Obama. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, he was president. Uh, I bought the book a long time ago, and I read a little bit then, and I didn't finish it. I saw it the other night in the library, and I started looking up what the word means, to be, aud- to be audacious. What does a hope look like when it's audacious? An audacious hope is a risk-taking hope. A risk-taking hope. An audacious hope is bold. It's daring. It's filled with courage and not afraid of the outcome. Show me a soul that's not worth someone having hope for. Show me someone so lost that they can't be saved. Show me some marriage that can't be redeemed that's struggling. Show me some relationship that can't be rebuilt. Show me some youth that can't be helped onto the right track. Show me some child who can't be loved into a better way. Show me one of those that the hopeful, loving, guiding hand the loving, forgiving, intentional, teachable, hopeful follower of Christ can impact. There are some out there who will refuse to be hope, but even their refusal is an object for our hope. We don't give up on anyone. Because Christ did. He didn't give up on us, and we don't have the luxury of giving up on anyone else. And it's the same about the gathered body of the church. Yeah, we have our struggles. We have our ups and downs, as was said. And believe me, night before last, I didn't sleep much. Because I finally did what Brian's been telling me to do for a while. Brian said, preacher. Or actually... He said it in an indirect way, which he was prone to do. Going to a finance meeting is always like that. I sat beside Brian. When I arrived, they appointed me my chair for all the committees. and told me that's where the pastor sat. So they sat me next to Brian, which is a little dangerous. And every now and then, he makes a very direct point indirectly for my benefit. And he's been saying now for a while, the numbers don't look good. Now, when I came here, I heard... Heard it said a number of times, Brian is only worried about the numbers. He'll drive you crazy. Well, Brian has never driven me crazy. I don't know where that came from, but Brian has never driven me crazy. But when he said, look at the numbers, I said, I'm going to next week. I promise I'm going to. Well, I did. And my reward for that was a, a night of tossing and turning and sleeping little. But you know what? Even in the midst of that, 
there is hope. Yes, we're behind this year, and we're probably going to end up a year behind. And yes, there are going to be some changes, and that's all right. Whatever we have to do in order to get our business right, we're going to do. Because that's the only way for us to get the money off of our mind and to get the ministry in front. We're as poor as we've been in a long time. I'm going to go ahead and tell them. Right? You think I ought to just go ahead and tell them? You probably, I know you think I should tell them. I'm going to go ahead and tell them. In our cash flow fund at the end of the month, there was a whopping $26,000. When I arrived about four years ago, that was about $400,000, four to 500, kind of vacillating. Don't let that bother you that our budget is like $1.7 million. Because we could run with $26,000 worth of excess cash, right? As long as we don't skip a snack. Because if we skip a, skip a snack, we're going to be behind. And guess what? We've been behind all year. And so that cash pile that used to be up here has been spent redoing the building. It's been spent redoing our preschool. It's been spent. And I don't regret any of that because it all needed to be done. And in fact, I kind of like it. You know what happens when we run out of money? We start taking better care of our money. We start giving more. So I don't know what the number is going to be at the end of December, and quite frankly, I doubt it's going to be enough that we're not going to have to make significant changes. But you know what? I remember a place, because I'm teachable, an institution that didn't pay attention to the numbers. And after 30 years, it has shrunk to the point where it had to be moved and relocated. Can I get a witness? Remember? Remember what happened to them? It's not going to happen to us because we're going to take the steps necessary to get our finances in order. Just like in your own house. When you spend and you spend and you spend and you charge and you charge and you charge and you get to the end of the a year and you go, wow, I've been doing this for 20 years and I've got a big old pile of debt. What am I going to do now? I'm going to hope for a miracle. <laughs> Me too. I'm hoping for a miracle for that same family. You know what I'm hoping for in that miracle? That they get a hold of their finances, change their spending habits, and correct the mistakes they've made in the past so that their future can be better and brighter because they quit spending today what they're not going to have until several tomorrows. And you know what? When they do, their life changes. There's less pressure in their marriage. There's less pressure with their children when they're not always under stress about money. It's the same thing at the church. We're going to get our finances right. Don't worry. Somebody said, well, I might be worried because you might make a wrong decision. Don't worry. I won't make a wrong decision because I'll be asking Brian. And don't worry. There's a whole room full of a committee right around Brian to help us decide what we're going to do. But we're going to do what has to be done. Because that's the way the church works. So we get our mind off of that and get our mind right back on those people who are filling up our playground we built for a day. By the way, Jen did such a good job with that. She's in the nursery, but she did such a great job with that. Now I'm done. Next week we're going to have a baptism. We may have more than one. I don't know. But we're going to have one for sure. And we're going to welcome a new member into the family of Christ. 
And that's what we're going to start doing more and more. Because you see, we're going to keep this vision in our minds, and I'm going to talk about it again next week somewhat. All those bones that are lying in that valley, dried up. You ever been in a pasture and seen an old dry cow bone where a cow had died years before, and that bone is white? It's so, it's so lifeless, it's brittle. And the Spirit said to Ezekiel, can those bones live? Ezekiel looked at those bones, and he walked around in them. He kicked them probably, and they rattled somewhat, and they were messy, and they were dead. And then he thought, God, you know, the God, the dude that spoke and created it out of the dirt. It's God, the dude that formed a whole nation out of an old man and an old woman who couldn't have children. And he birthed one through them. It's God who led his people to, to freedom after 400 years of captivity in Egypt. And Moses let them out. It's that same God who's talking to me now, Ezekiel's thinking, who has forgiven the people of Israel over and over and over again, calling them and calling them, and finally sent Jesus to make it clear how hopeful he was for them. And he looked up at God, and Ezekiel says, he didn't say, yes, they can live. He just said, you know God. Ezekiel's kind of like, I don't know, man. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The nation of Israel has been plundered and scattered. And there's just a few of us left here in the captivity in Babylon. It doesn't look like we can live. But you know if we can live. You know. Prophesy. Prophesy. Speak the word. And call upon the Spirit to come and breathe life into that bone. And then they were shake, rattling, and rolling, right? They were shake, rattling, and rolling. And Ezekiel had something he would never forget. The next time you see someone and they look like a bag of old dried bones, I want you to think, can these bones live, Lord? They're a mess right now. And then I want you to remember what God said if you're here today and God has not spoken into your dry bones lately he will speak again if you're here today and you've never accepted the message from God that the spirit can change your life he's here all you have to do is surrender yourself to him if you're ready to make a decision for Christ or about becoming a part of a body of believers ready to throw aside the words you hear about the church not mattering anymore and ready to become a place part of a place that does matter we'd love to meet you just stand forward get up and come forward as we stand and sing our closing song bless your people lord as they come put a song in their heart put a smile on their face and cause them to give themselves away that your kingdom might come on earth even as it already has in heaven in jesus name we pray amen amen